Dear Father, just now we pray that you would come close to each person here, that uh, amidst all of the other things that we're thinking about, that we can turn our attention to you just now and understand something important about what is revealed in this last of the three angels' message. Amen. Doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? What is this referred to? He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the Lamb. So we'll talk with this about this, but first I just had to uh, address a, a question here, and I'm not sure if the person who sent this to me this week is here, but here was the question. Uh, Dr. Cole, I'm relatively new to your Bible study. You talk a lot about Satan. And I'm just wondering why you emphasize this point so much. And I can see where maybe someone uh, dropping in would wonder. Um, well, first of all, we're in the book of Revelation, right? It's hard to ignore the dragon and the beasts and all of that. So that kind of pushes that forward. But maybe this is a good opportunity just to kind of um, summarize why we have spent so much time, not just in Revelation, but actually throughout the New Testament, um, talking about this. So just in a nutshell, I'm going to just share why this perspective is helpful for me. Okay, I see the, the cosmic conflict view as a very practical, relevant, and key word here, explanatory, for understanding our world. world. It's, uh, I think it, it meets very fundamental questions and problems that we have about our world. And I've used this um, slide several times, but just the, the concept that everything that happens it only relates, relates to God and us, if we leave out this other dimension, the non-human reality, uh, I think we miss out on the, the complexity of our universe and why things work the way they do. So we, need to, we try to explain why putting this uh, as a triangle and not just it's either God or us um, is helpful. So let me give some examples. Um, you know, in medicine, you have to make the right diagnosis if your treatment is going to be helpful, Right? And I think the cosmic conflict view helps us to make the, the right diagnosis for the sin problem. Um, quite a few years ago, I was at the county hospital and this, this patient came in and he was getting weaker, short of breath. And I remember thinking, okay, is this Guillain-Barre and a number of things, but it wasn't really clear what was going on. And so I came back and I asked him again, you know, wasn't there something going on before all of this happened? And then he kind of, uh, I think, realized how desperate his situation was, and he told me, okay, I shoot up heroin. And that was a very important clue, because if you're a second-year student, you might remember that especially heroin you get from Mexico, black tar heroin, causes botulism. Okay, so it was identifying the problem, which made then the diagnosis clear, and then the treatment um, quite uh, uh, readily to uh, see what needed to be done. So identifying the problem is very important and the cosmic conflict view, I think, helps to do that. So I don't know if we've talked about this um, this year, but just in the opening of the Bible, okay, the creation story, that the earth was formless and void, that's tohu vabohu, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And there's a lot to be unpacked here, but if we look at this phrase, which is not used too many times, just a handful of times in the Old Testament, um, this has to do with a chaos, a, a spiritual darkness as it's used throughout the Old Testament. And so as many have seen that this formless and void tohu vabohu in the Bible symbolizes the forces that oppose Yahweh and his acts of creation, the forces of disorder, injustice, affliction, chaos, which are in the Israelite worldview one. The point being that the creation of our world and the creation story is in a, a broader context of something that wasn't good. 
And in case we have doubts about that, of course, what's that snake doing in the tree? If everything was just perfect in the universe when our world was created. I mean, God wouldn't put a bad snake in there. There was something going on. And that's, again, where our war in heaven is. We try to back up and imagine um, what was going on even before the creation of our world, that there was a war in heaven. Okay, that puts things on a broader perspective and we wonder what happened in the war in heaven. And we've talked about that at, at some length. But also very important, you know, what happened to the human race? How did we become infected, if we want to use that word, with sin? And of course, the story then at the tree just becomes very important. This is what went wrong. And remember, what went wrong is that the devil came and, and uh, really just um, lied about God. You know, he said, it's a pity you can't eat any fruit in this garden, even though God had just said you can eat all the fruit except for one tree. Okay, so kind of painted God out to be restrictive of freedom. And then he just blatantly said, God's a liar. He's lied to you. He's selfishly kept something that would be for your own good. Okay, and so eating the apple then symbolized really believing the lie. And the lie was really a distortion about God's trustworthy character. So I like a, a summary statement here, that Eve believed the words of Satan and the belief of that falsehood in regards to God's character changed the condition and character of both herself and her husband. So the problem, if we want to go all the way back, what was the first problem? It was a misunderstanding of God, a deceptive misunderstanding of God. So that's, that's kind of the infection. Now, I would see all of God's efforts ultimately deal, to deal with the sin problem then are at correcting what went wrong in the first place. Okay, that's the first point. The second is, um, I see the cosmic conflict view as very important as we try to grapple with the Old Testament. Okay, um, Satan's only mentioned three times in the Old Testament. And in other times, he's hidden behind the king of Babylon, the king of Tyre, Leviathan, Gog, all these other um, things that then we read the New Testament. And as we've seen in Revelation, boy, the, Isaiah 14, that's, that is clearly a, a reference to Satan in, in the book of Revelation. But he's relatively absent in the Old Testament. Okay, we've talked about some reasons for that. Now I'm just going to kind of say why it is important that we put the adversary back into the Old Testament. Otherwise, uh, just here in the books of First uh, and Second Samuel, there's just a lot of problematic things here. Three times we read in First Samuel that the Lord's spirit left Saul and an evil spirit sent by the Lord tormented him. Okay, does God dispatch evil spirits to torment people? Well, we know from James that God doesn't tempt to evil. But in 1 Samuel, um, there's just a lot of this. Many, many, many examples here in 1 Samuel. And we have in 2 Samuel that the Lord was angry at Israel again and he made David think it would be a good idea to count the people in Israel and Jews, in uh, Judah. So again, it sounds like God is tempting someone to do something that's wrong. And uh, what's just fascinating about this is you read the same story in 1 Chronicles and now it is Satan wanted to bring trouble on the people of Israel, so he made David decide to take a census. And so I don't see this as uh, destroying our view of the inspiration of Scripture. Okay, but we see in Scripture as an unfolding of reality. Okay, in 1 Samuel, God does everything, does it all. Okay, but uh, we, we have the slowly unfolding picture of an adversary, a cosmic conflict. And uh, so I find that very helpful for the Old Testament. All right, the, the third point would be that uh, the life and death of Jesus, again, which is usually described as it's only for me. 
It's only for us. It's God and humans. Jesus came to save, which of course he did. came to save you and I. But to put it also in a broader perspective, and we had a whole talk on all of the verses in the, Old Test- in the New Testament to talk about Jesus coming to defeat the devil and that the cross is where he did it. It's just abundant in the uh, New Testament. And just in looking in the Gospel of John, it's so interesting in the Gospel of John how many times it talks about the hour of Jesus. Okay, he changed the water to wine, but his hour had not yet come. Remember, he told his mother. And so many times, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And then finally, when his hour comes, Jesus says, now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, do not let this hour come upon me? But that is why I came, so that I might go through this hour of suffering, referring to his death. Okay, what happened at the hour? Okay, and uh, as uh, Sigby Tonstead has described, this is the, the most important verse in John, at least in his interpretation. And the hour is now is the time for this world to be judged. Now the ruler of this world, okay, who's uh, Satan, will be overthrown. And that could be translated exposed. So the, the uh, central mission of Jesus was to save you and I. But how did he do it? Well, he did it in the context of also destroying the one who is the ruler of this world. So we put the atonement and our understanding of what Jesus did in in a big context. Okay, as we've said the last few months, that cosmic conflict is very important as we look at the book of Revelation because if it's just God or us acting in the book of Revelation, then I think the only way to interpret the trumpets and, and these other sequences is it's God's retributive punishment for sin. But remember the trumpet sequence. I mean, the, the third trumpet, that's the fallen angel in Isaiah 14. The fifth trumpet, okay, we're told who's acting there. It's the destroyer. It's even labeled. And in so many other places, God is not the only one doing things in the book of Revelation. Okay, very important. So Revelation is not only the story of the lamb, it is the story of the dragon and how God in the person of Jesus, the lamb, destroyed the dragon. So it's important for Revelation and how we understand what will happen in the future. Say, so what do we look at as we consider maybe things, maybe confusing things that will happen in the future? I think it's just very important that we identify the two kingdoms. And then as much as possible, we see, okay, that's God, that's what he looks like, that's what his kingdom looks like, that's the adversary, that's what he looks like, that's what his kingdom looks like. So if I just had, were forced to make a short list, I would put some things like this. What do we see the dragon doing in Revelation? Uh, using coercive methods. Force, fear, intimidation. Methods that are shrouded in mystery, lies, and deception. Okay, what do we see about God in the book of Revelation? Well, one thing I just really like is that God's government is transparent, which we talked about. The seven churches, remember, they're invited up and to see the throne room scene, and they can see the one on the throne is the violently slaughtered lamb. His government is transparent. He wants us to understand. Okay? Because God has the truth on his side. He has nothing to hide. Right? If you don't have the truth on your side, then you need to resort to lies and deception. So God's methods, uh, I would say, is that it is the truth spoken in love, the truth lived out in love, and then people are free to decide. They're not compelled to decide. And then I would say that uh, the nature of God's kingdom, the power of it, is selfless love, service, not uh, coercion, force from above. So these contrasts are important. Okay, another, and uh, this is a very practical one, just uh, very helpful for me, taking care of patients. 
Um, my specialty in neurology, I've probably told you, is in ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, where half of patients die within two to three years of the onset of symptoms. It's a horrible condition. Okay, so continually, there, you know, you see a lot of suffering. And as a physician, you have to grapple how in the world could this happen to this healthy man who has a family and so on. Okay, I think the cosmic conflict view is the best, uh, again, just my opinion, best way of addressing the theodicy issue. Okay, we, we again see a contrast, we see an, an opponent, and we see, uh, I think, Jesus coming to destroy the adversary by revealing, this is what I'm like, and this is what my kingdom is like. And so in the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, that's the picture we want to have of God's face toward human suffering. Okay, so what do we see in the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry? Everyone got healed. People who didn't ask got healed. Okay, Jesus healed lepers, and only a few came back and thanked him. Okay, he walked by a funeral, and no one asked him. He just went over and, and resurrected the man. Um, he fed people. No one went hungry. Um, you know, the, the face of Jesus as he healed the leper, he was filled with great pity. So, um, the picture of God that, that I try to portray to patients who are suffering is if I could just make one point, it would be that God is just like Jesus and during those three and a half years, that's, that's what we see what God is like and that's what we see what his kingdom is like. Everyone is healed, everyone is fed, children are resurrected. Okay, the problem is there's another prince of this world which you know, the writings even after the cross reveal that Satan is still the God of this age. Okay, so we see God's kingdom during those three and a half years. That's the picture of God that, that we want to reveal. But along with that, closely related to that, is that God is not sitting back distantly on his throne with his arms folded, reluctant to heal. Okay, it's not that God is sitting there saying, boy, if you just had a little more faith, I could heal you. Okay, what we want to picture God as is the one who has suffered the most. Just imagine going from God to nine months in a womb and then finally dead in a tomb and all of the suffering that, that you know, he went through that entire period of time. So God identifies with our suffering. And I think it's also helpful just to point out that the lives of the best people in human history, I mean, God's friends, if we want to say that, um, suffered the most. Look at Jeremiah, Isaiah, John the Baptist, Peter. Okay, the message that if you're a Christian, you will have health and wealth, I think is really harmful. Okay, we see God's friends who really went all the way frequently were the ones who suffered the most. So I think if we talk about those kinds of things, often with patients having those kinds of conversations, um, it can be helpful. The, the goal is you really want to try to as much as possible bring what is God like, look at the cross. That's, that's the clear revelation of God's character. And in contrast, in Jesus we see that God is a healer, not a destroyer. Okay, we pointed out in Revelation that Satan is labeled, identified as the destroyer. Isaiah 14, he's, you've destroyed your people. Okay, and his methods are completely the opposite. God in Christ, his condescension going all the way to a tomb. He went down and we see that, that Satan, and mainly this is from Isaiah 14, striving to get higher, higher, higher. It's a survival of the fittest kind of mentality. That's a whole, the way our whole world operates. Okay, it's pushing others down to try to get to the top. Okay, that's the nature of, of Satan and his kingdom. 
And again, during the life and death of Jesus, we see that that is all exposed. Okay, that Satan would even go all the way to drive the mob to crucify the Son of God, the things he did in the wilderness temptations. Uh, I think just the stark contrast becomes really clear. The other thing uh, closely related to that is um, people today don't struggle so much, well, some do, with some of God's actions in the Old Testament. That's certainly an important issue. But it seems to me that uh, at least what I hear more often is complaints about God's relative inaction. Okay, we live in the post-Holocaust era, era, and to understand why God doesn't intervene is, um, is problematic. Okay, I think that, again, the cosmic conflict view is perhaps our best window into understanding um, perhaps what seems like God's relative inaction in our suffering. And just as one example um, of, of that, remember Daniel's prayer where he prays this very moving prayer that uh, God would allow the Jews to come back to Jerusalem out of the Babylonian captivity. Okay? And nothing happened for 21 days. And then finally, an angel comes. Daniel, don't be afraid. God has heard your prayers ever since the first day you decided to humble yourself in order to gain understanding. I have come in answer to your prayer. And so it's an amazing story because um, it's just one of those times where the curtain gets pulled back and we get to see Daniel prayed clearly in harmony with God's will Nothing happened, and now the angel is going to explain what's been going on. Okay, here's what was going on in those 21 days. The angel prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Now, who is the angel prince of the kingdom of Persia? And then Michael, one of the chief angels, came to help me. Now I have to go back and fight the guardian angel of Persia. After that, the guardian angel of Greece will appear. There's no one to help me except Michael, Israel's guardian angel. He's responsible for helping and defending me. So... Um, this uh, kind of opens up a really complex universe with opposing forces. Okay, and we have to grapple with how in the world could God even allow for an enemy? Why doesn't he just eliminate it? Okay, but there are opposing forces and that's why a subject like prayer becomes really complex. Again, it's not just God and us. There's a very complex universe and we get a little bit of a, a picture of that here. Okay, I think this is really helpful though also because we see ourselves as important in this conflict. Okay, look at the, the prayer of Daniel, how it seemed to unleash these cosmic forces against each other. Okay, we're a part of it. Okay, in just a, a verse I read recently, Paul is talking about traveling around and he wanted to return to Thessalonica. I myself tried to go back more than once, but Satan would not let us. It's just a, is this a metaphor or it would seem like we could really build a picture of an adversary who actually thwarts the will of God on occasion. So, I think the cosmic conflict moves us more from uh, spectators in all of this. It's not just, well, we're waiting to die to get to heaven, but it kind of thrusts us into the battle. We see ourselves as participants. Okay, that uh, we actually take part in trying to destroy the works of the devil. And as uh, Paul would say in Romans, and God, our source of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. Hey, that God is working with his people as he has throughout human history to um, try to get the truth out and to destroy the lies of the adversary. We're an important part of that. Okay, so that was my, I guess that wasn't a very short answer, but to that uh, one question. Now, let's, um, let's try to get through here the, the last angel. So last time we read about this message, the final message to the world is the eternal or everlasting good news. 
Okay, and I want to concentrate on this last part here um, uh, first before we get to the third angel. For the time has come for him to judge all people. And so often we see in the Bible the good news and judgment as going together. And so I first want to just address a little bit how does the presentation of the good news, how does that relate to judgment? Okay, first remember, uh, how does judgment work? This is the clearest verse on judgment. Jesus' conversation with uh, Nathaniel. And he said, this is how the judgment works. I mean, shouldn't that be a key text for how the judgment works? This is how the judgment works. Okay, here it is. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light. Okay, Jesus comes as the light of the world. That is the judgment. And the, the, the judgment really is the response to the light. Okay, and so some people love the darkness rather than the light. Okay, so uh, remember who is the judge? Again, another very clear, clear verse, the Father judges no one. And yet our, our concept is that the Father is the one sitting on his throne judging us, but Jesus would say the Father judges no one. He's given his Son the full right to judge. And he's given the Son the right to judge because he is the Son of Man. So I would interpret this as Jesus is the judge because Jesus is the revealer. He is the light of the world. Okay, the, the judgment we want to really, I think, associate with the word revelation. Okay, the, the judge comes as revealer. So, how does Jesus judge those who reject his message? What does he do to them? Who is the judge? Okay, there's such a wonderful verse here in John 12. If people hear my message and do not obey it, I will not judge them, even though he just said, I'm the judge. I came not to judge the world, but to save it. Those who reject me and do not accept my message have one who will judge them. The words I have spoken will be their judge on the last day. Okay, what words? If you were to read all of John chapter 12... I think it becomes uh, clear the, the context of this, but I would say if we wanted to just put what words will be the judge, it is the message here. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus came to reveal the Father. Do you like a God who's like that? Okay, that that, that is really the, the core issue. I think we could see that in, um, you know, Jesus came to his own people, okay, and it wasn't because they weren't looking for a Messiah. Okay, they'd interpreted prophecy. They were expecting them to come, but they didn't know what God was like. That's why they rejected Jesus. Okay, so again, I would say the same issue for us today. What are we expecting when God comes back? And I think the most important thing is that we really have um, unpacked the importance of these words. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Our picture of God must equate with Jesus Christ. Okay, and so that brings judgment. So according to the good news I preach, this is how it will be on the day when God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. The good news, which is, we said last time, the, the good news about God, the good news about God revealed in Jesus. Okay, that is the ultimate judge. Okay, I want to read this verse, which we did two weeks ago, again, but just with that same uh, mindset, that God uses us, his people, to make the knowledge about Christ spread everywhere like a sweet fragrance. For we are like a sweet-smelling incense offered by Christ to God, which spreads among those who are being saved and who are being lost. For those who are being lost, it is a deadly stench that kills. But for those who are being saved, it is a fragrance that brings life. I think we could say this is the good news that is going out, like this fragrance. But notice the, the splitting effect 
that it has. For some, it's a deadly stench that kills. Okay, that's judgment again. The light coming into the world and some prefer the darkness. But for others, it's a fragrance that brings life. Okay, so judgment is revelation and it reveals our response to that good news. So just uh, one example um, here. Pharaoh, he got a lot of evidence from God, a, a judgment or a revelation in a sense. And it's amazing here in the, in the span of uh, two verses, we have three explanations for what happened to Pharaoh. One is that he hardened his heart. The next is that the heart of Pharaoh was hard. And then finally, uh, God says, I have hardened his heart. How do we reconcile all three of those? Okay, I think that is exactly what we're just describing here. And I love the illustration that if you take a lump of butter and a lump of clay, okay, you put them into an oven, you turn the heat up, butter melts and the clay becomes hard. Okay, so judgment is revelation. Okay, God, in a sense, does it because he brings the revelation, he brings the good news, Okay, so the heat gets turned up, but it is the response in us that determines. Are we melted? Do we be, become one with God or do we become hardened against him? So that's what I would see in the first angel's message. The good news goes throughout the world. It's intense. It's bright. Okay, people see it. Some come into the light. Some reject it. It has a splitting effect. And that's why I think we see in Revelation um, such a distinction between those who have the seal of God and those who have the mark of the beast. Because uh, when the good news really goes out in all of its beauty and power, okay, you either have to like and accept it or reject it. So that's what I think uh, we're seeing here in the separation. So that's the first angel's message. Okay, the second angel's message, remember, describes the woman, Great Babylon, the church, who went from being faithful standing on the sun, fleeing from the dragon. And then remember, we get to Revelation 17 and John is appalled. Now she's sitting on the beast. Okay, which would be kind of a natural outflow uh, of the good news, wouldn't it? That if the good news goes out, okay, and people have to decide the, that the rejection of that by the church, okay, would, would be devastating. And so it's described here in, in very strong words that this is preferring the darkness. In this case, how sad that the church, taking the name of Christ, would, uh, would even reject the essence of the good news. Okay, so then we come to the third angel's message. Third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath, Okay, so remember all we've said about what God's wrath is um, throughout the Bible. Okay, we want to bring all of that meaning to these words, okay, but we're going to concentrate on this part. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There's no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Okay, and so I think for those that would support a literal burning fire of hell for all eternity, this would certainly be one of the, the key texts for that. So what do we do with words like this? Um, remember, one of our um, most important things we said is that Revelation is made up of the Old Testament. So anytime we find something like this, we always want to identify the Old Testament reference 
And that is such an important key, and not just to identify where it is, but to read all around it and understand what was being said in the Old Testament. Okay, so the reference for this is in Ezekiel. Uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah. A lot of revelations from Ezekiel. But this passage is from Isaiah 34, okay, which is describing the people of Edom. Remember, these are the descendants of Esau. So the rivers of Edom will turn into tar and the soil will turn into sulfur. The whole country will burn like tar. It will burn day and night and smoke will rise from it forever. The land will lie waste age after age and no one will ever travel through it again. Owls and ravens will take over the land. The Lord will make it a barren waste again as it was before creation. Okay, and uh, we don't have any record of uh, uh, Edomites. So... Uh, the Edomites were destroyed. Now, just the question is, if you're reading this in Isaiah's time, uh, well, first of all, did God burn Edom with fire? Okay, we don't have any record of that. Is Edom still burning? It will burn day and night and smoke will rise from it forever. Okay, now these are powerful, symbolic words okay, that would mean something if you were reading them during that time, Edom was destroyed. And if it's burning forever and ever, would you expect owls and ravens to be flying around in a place that's still burning with the tar pits and all of that? So no, these are, these are symbolic words. And the book of Revelation uses this imagery that describes destruction that happened to Edom. Okay, and it incorporates that awful imagery um, to the people that reject God in the end. Okay, for Edom, it didn't describe an eternity of burning. Okay, the other really important point here is where these people are being tormented. Okay, they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. Okay, there's obviously some symbolism here because God is not a Lamb. Okay, but the question is, what does it mean to be tormented in the presence? even angels and the Lamb. Okay, are they all standing in a literal lake of fire? Okay, again, that there's, there, the torture occurs in the presence is, I think, significance, uh, significant. So we, we had a talk, uh, I don't know, six months ago or so on fire. And remember that many times in the Bible, God is himself a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, Daniel 4, and we went through all of the examples in the Old Testament where God comes as fire. Comes as fire when uh, Moses talks with him at the burning bush, but this was not, obviously not a fire like you light a match. Right? The bush was not consumed. And so many times, God came like fire on Mount Sinai, but there was not a forest fire. He came like fire into the temple, but the sheets didn't burn. And uh, so many other examples like that. So God here is like a fire, but we're not talking about a you know, combustible fire that destroys. Okay, well, I would want to take all of that meaning to the fire here that is being described in Revelation. And this is my favorite verse here on fire in Isaiah 33. That the sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Here's the question they're asking. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Wouldn't that be God? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? Well, and then it's amazing. It goes on to describe, well, he who walks righteously and speaks what is right can. So God is a consuming fire, I would say, of love and truth and goodness and all of those things. But for those that are completely out of harmony with God and his character and his kingdom, his very presence 
causes distress. Okay, so I would see this as a kind of more of a psychological uh, guilt that is being experienced by those who are in the presence of God who completely dislike God being the way that he is. Okay, there's one more verse I like on fire. I don't think I read this last time. Song of Solomon. Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. So um, God is a consuming fire, but can we get to the essence? What is that fire? It's describing much more than um, very complex uh, imagery here. But just like Isaiah, remember coming into the presence of God and he felt guilty. He saw God in all of his glory. And then he was given this coal which touched his lips. Obviously, that didn't burn his lips. And then he was encouraged. And then he gave a, a message. Okay, but... Um, There's something else that uh, I've just appreciated recently here is that God is not the only one involved with fire in the book of Revelation. So let's hold on all that meaning about God being a consuming fire of love and truth. But there is also fire from the opposing side. The second lamb-like beast in Revelation performs great miracles and makes fire come down from heaven. Okay, that's kind of interesting. And in the sixth trumpet, remember the demonic mounted troops that from their mouths came out fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur coming out of the horses' mouths. Okay, this is, this is I think, clearly not a, a literal fire, but fire from the demonic. Okay, and here is, I think, the key point, because when you read the three angels' message, remember the second one describes the, the prostitute, the church, Okay, the expansion of that occurs in Revelation 17 and 18. And just notice how Revelation 17 starts out. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, come and I will show you how the famous prostitute is to be punished. Well, we just read that in the third angel's message. Remember the prostitute is sitting on the beast who is now being tortured in the presence of God. But here we get it in much more detail. Come, I will show you how it's going to happen how that prostitute is to be punished, that great city that is built near many rivers. Okay, and we read on, and it includes uh, this fascinating description in verse 16. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the whore, they will make her desolate and naked, they will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So we see fire not only coming from God here, but the destruction of the famous prostitute occurs as fire from the other side, not from God. So, who makes war in Revelation? It is the satanic, again and again and again. It's amazing how many times that the dragon and his angels warred, 12.7, then the dragon went off to make war, 12.17. It was allowed to make war on the saints, 13.7. The beasts will make war on them, chapter 11. These are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for war in chapter 16. And then in 19, then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider. And of course, the rider is the one coming with a sword out of his mouth. So, you know, it's, it's the other side that is always bringing war, war, war. Okay, and um, I know I'm going through a lot of information here, but I... Uh, I just think some of this is important that we try to grapple with how it's all going to end. 
Uh, we have a very vivid image here in chapter 14 of the wine press, where blood flowed as high as the bridles of the horses for a distance of about 200 miles. Okay, I, now I hope we're, we're reading symbols into this, but this is some sort of horrible, uh, devastating destruction. Okay, what does that refer to? Well, in the, the best evidence, I think, for where this comes from is actually, actually extra-biblical in First Enoch. But just read in the context. What would this mean to the Jews in that day? And see the parallels here in this passage. In those days, a stream shall flow with their blood. For a man shall not be able to withhold his hands from his sons, nor from his sons' sons, in order to kill them. Nor is it possible for the sinner to withhold his hands from his honored brother. From dawn until the sun sets, they shall slay each other. The horse shall walk through the blood of sinners up to his chest, and the chariot shall sink down up to its top. Um, This is describing some uh, horrible conflict, right? Where the, the humans are killing each other. Okay, that's the setting here for this blood that is as high as the bridles of the horses. It's a self-destruction. Okay, and um, I'll just put there a whole bunch of uh, verses here. I'll just maybe leave them in. Old Testament verses that just describe war and brother fighting brother in kind of an, uh, an apocalyptic um, setting. But maybe I won't read those for now. And uh, even if you go to Ezekiel uh, 28, you know, how is Satan destroyed? It's, I will make a fire come up with, within you which would seem to be more of a a self-destruction than an externally imposed punishment. Okay, so I think think, uh, we think about what's going to happen. We want to try to put all of this together if we can and to understand God's fire and fire from the other side. Let me just conclude here with uh, a few things. A few thoughts. Revelation is a bookend to Genesis. There are so many contrasting parallels between the opening of Genesis and what went wrong and what happens in Revelation. In Genesis, as we said, God was portrayed to be an untrustworthy, arbitrary liar by the serpent. In Revelation, though, God is called faithful and true. Jesus is the faithful witness. God's faithfulness, trustworthiness, is demonstrated in Revelation, and the serpent is unmasked as the devil who deceived them. We see that Satan is the one who is the deceiver. In Genesis, God's mere presence caused Adam and Eve, remember, to head for the bushes. And God would tell Moses, no one can see my face and live, even though Moses saw God face to face. But no one can see my face and live. In Revelation, just the opposite. God's people are now protected by his presence. And not no longer that they can't see his face and live, but now they will see his face. This is just the most wonderful verse. They will see his face and his name or character will be written on their foreheads. So it's the exact opposite of not being able to see God's face. In Genesis, Adam and Eve are told that because of what they did, the ground will be under a curse. In Revelation, nothing that is under God's curse will be found in the city. It's all undone. In Genesis, Adam and Eve lost access to the tree of life. In Revelation... The book ends, or actually begins and ends with, I will give the right to eat the fruit of the tree of life that grows in the garden of God and the leaves of this tree will heal the nations. Okay, Revelation ends with a description of healing, which is, I think, uh, very beautiful. In Genesis, humans are separated from God and Adam and Eve were warned of a life of hardship, struggles, ultimately death. 
God said you were made from the dust and to the dust you will return. In Revelation, it's all undone. Now God's home is with people. He will live with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and he will be their God. He will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more grief or crying or pain. The old things, these old things here in Revelation have disappeared. So, this uh, just gives me a lot of uh, hope in stressful times, things that are going on, probably things that you're experiencing right now, just to remember that uh, there is a really a wonderful time to look forward to, seeing God's face, um, experiencing this uh, adornment with God that the book of Revelation describes. All right, so let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, thank you for the great hope that is presented in Revelation, uh, that we can perhaps stand back and see uh, this horrible conflict that not just this world, but that the universe has been involved in. Um, but, um, but we're so grateful to see that uh, in the end you will be victorious. And uh, we certainly uh, desire to see your face and uh, experience that with you. Amen. Thank you.